Please be seated. If you'll turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 110, we are going to read it here in a moment. It's Psalm 110. And we are continuing on our way through the Apostles' Creed, um, looking at what is basic Christianity, but, but Psalm 110 has all of that information, all that doctrine, all that reality packed in there. And so really what we're going to do this morning is we say, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, as so we're going to do some doctrine and learn some of this will be a reminder. I'm hoping it'll just strike you in a new way to speak to where, where you are at. Because a big part of what the Bible does is just proclaims, it trumpets, it shouts the gospel message, this is true, about Jesus. And so let's read Psalm 110. I would encourage you, if you're to try and memorize a couple of these verses, if not the whole thing, it's just a good way to... Uh, Get this worldview, this way of thinking in, in, your, in your mind. So let's hit, listen to God's word. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion, your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And this is God's word. It is true and trustworthy and revealed in love. Let's pray. Father, you have made everything beautiful in its time and have put eternity in our hearts. And yet we are a people who are prone to live for right now. So I pray you would remind us once again that the gospel is true and give us eyes to see Jesus, our risen Lord, and see him as our Messiah our King, and, and our Lord who gave himself up in love for us. So Holy Spirit, come, speak the truth to us, um, move us to as, as the psalm promised, that we would offer ourselves freely to this great King and even lift up our heads because we are the forgiven sons and daughters of, of this King. Uh, brothers and sisters, fathers, sons and daughters of our great Father. So change us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that happens as I plan ahead is just try and get a general idea of where we're going to go. I had this idea of to do the Apostles' Creed probably back in, in the winter when it was cold and we had more time to think because we were all stuck inside, freezing. But what surprised me and what I didn't anticipate as we jumped into Psalm 110 and the Apostles' Creed is how, how really this is designed to sharpen your understanding of the word gospel. Um, that the psalm itself is a gospel proclamation, a promise of what God would do. And as Christians, we stand on what God has done. We are proclaimers of good news, right? 
And so Psalm 110 is the gospel. It's God's gospel. It's God's good news. And the content of the gospel is the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself is this announcement that this stuff is true. God is, and he sent his son. And so, again, just to remind you, gospel is a proclamation word. It, it means good, good news. It's not good advice, right? I mean, we know the difference instinctively, but it helps to hear it, right? Kids, it's, you're back in school. Here's good advice from your teacher. You have a major test coming. It's, your entire future depends on it. Therefore, don't screw it up. Study hard. That's good advice. You have a test coming, prepare for it. Don't disappoint your parents, the school district. Don't waste the taxpayers' money, right? Study. However they motivate you, hopefully nicer than that. But the idea is good advice tells you, you got this. You have to fix this. It's only you. That's anxiety, complex, inducing, good advice. But good news, a gospel would be that you have a test coming up, and just imagine your teacher saying this to you guys. Your entire future rests upon your well, how well you pass this exam, but before you ever take the exam, I'm going to give you a perfect score. That's my gift to you. You still have to take the exam, and I want to see what you know. It's a proclamation of what... That, that's an announcement that something is real, and it's going to affect the way you take that test. You're either going to freak out and study, or you're going to rest and see what you know. Right? Good news that produces loyalty and love. And so Christianity is in that, that kind of idea. Basic Christianity is the gospel announcement that Jesus is the Christ. He is the one that God promised long ago to right all that is wrong in this world, including you and me. So in your bulletin, I have a reflection. And this is really what I'm hoping you become, is, is just skilled at, at knowing what the gospel is. So somebody says, what's the point of following Jesus? Why do you go to church on Sunday? And you can just say, here's the gospel. This is real life. It says, Brian Chapel puts it this way, the gospel simply means good news. The Bible uses the term to refer to the message that God has fulfilled his promise to send a savior to rescue broken people, which includes me. He restores creation glory and he's going to rule over all with compassion and justice. And so today we're going to zero in on the content of that good news, which is Jesus himself as the Christ, God's only son, our Lord. And so we're going to do some doctrine, and hopefully it'll help sharpen your thinking. And I w- next week we're going to come back and say how do p- God's people respond to the gospel in particular. What does the church do? But today we're going to see that from Psalm 110 that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. He is God's Son, and He is our Lord. And what does all that mean? Because right, it's not just us Westerners that say the, the Apostles' Creed. It's it's been the church universal for 17, 1600 years. has been used as a tool to teach what the Bible teaches. So let's look at the first one. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. I want to talk about what does it mean to be the Messiah, right? This is not a common word. I mean, when was the last time outside of these walls you heard that word, Messiah? Right? So Psalm 110 is about the Christ, the Messiah, so we got to figure out what does that mean. And it helps to go forward to Mark chapter 1, verse 1, when Mark says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I want you to see the Apostles' Creed has taken that language straight from the scriptures. 
Right? It's not man-made tradition. It's summarizing. It's a teaching tool. So Mark says the gospel, it's about Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah. And so two things. When you think about Jesus Christ, this is really simple. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Right? And some of us have been Christians a long time where we can chuckle, but it's just really easy to think about it as just, just a part of Jesus. It's his name. Christ is a title. It's the Greek word for anointed one, for Messiah, that comes from the Hebrew scriptures. Right? And the Jesus when, is the Christ. It's saying that Jesus was made. He is the promised Messiah, the person all of the Old Testament has been waiting for. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the person promised beginning in Genesis 3.15 that everyone was called by faith to look for. He's the Messiah. And so when you read the Old Testament, before you get to Psalm 110, everything, every page in the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, the theme that's running all the way through it, if you've never read the Bible, is telling you to look out for the Messiah. God has promised to right what is wrong in this world and in your life. He will fix what has infected you, it has infected your neighbor, it's infected the ground, it's infected creation. Evil, sin is just, well, everything is broken and ruined by the fall. And God has a solution, a person, the Christ, the Messiah. All right? And so what the Messiah was promised to do, he's going to overcome evil, he's going to fulfill God's promises, all of them, Especially the Abrahamic promise to be a blessing to the nations. He's going to renew the whole earth. He's going to set up Eden on earth again when God walked with his people. So if you want to summarize the Bible, the Bible is a story of how much God loves his children and how committed he is to his children that he would send a Messiah to heal them, to rescue them from evil, and to put all of their enemies under their feet through the Messiah, the Christ. And if you're familiar, we, we could spend all day and all afternoon looking at all these promises of what the Messiah is like, but it's really simple if you start with Genesis 3.15. He's going to be a son of Adam. He's going to be human, right? He's going to be a child, someone like you, but he's also going to be a royal figure who's going to win the war against evil. And so here's what I want to grip your imagination with, the biblical imagination, is if you are an Old Testament believer as David is who wrote this psalm, part of your faith, what, what justified you in the Old Testament, what, what brought you into relationship with God and sustained you was faith in the promise that God would send the Christ. So if you're an Old Testament believer, you could say life is filled with sorrow, death, and darkness, but it will not always be that way when the Messiah comes. We are oppressed. We are beaten down. We have this wicked ruler, Babylon, or, or the Pharaoh, or whoever it might be. But when the Messiah comes, he's going to set us free. Struggle and conflict are our life, but it will not always be so when the Christ comes. And you have all these rumors of when the Messiah comes, the lion's going to lie down with the lamb. Children are going to stick their hand in a poisonous snake hole and play. Right? They're going to give each other high fives. Right? Something that would give you a panic attack as a parent now, seeing your children play peekaboo with a python. 
God's going to dry your tear ducts when the Messiah comes. That's the promise. See, the, what I'm trying to get you to feel is, is when you get to Psalm 110, there's a whole story behind it of just waiting for the Messiah to come. And David's going to give you a clear picture of who that Messiah is. But just, the way you read the Old Testament is say, what is this Messiah going to be like? What is he going to be like? I mean, Genesis ends, look for the evil-crushing king, the serpent-crushing king from the line of Judah. When you get to Deuteronomy, it ends and says, well, it clearly wasn't Moses, but he's going to be like Moses, but better, and we haven't met him yet, which makes you read forward. And when you get to Judges, as we just studied earlier this year, well, there's clearly no Messiah because everything's a mess. There, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So if you have that story in your head and you're waiting for the Messiah and you're waiting for the person that David said that God will use to put all enemies under his feet, when you get to Mark chapter 1, it says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's a, bomb, a bombshell. It's saying that the person in Psalm 110, in the entire Old Testament scriptures, he, he came. Because the Hebrew listener would know Psalm 110 well. They would know that the person that God is talking to is the Messiah, and they would hear Mark saying, Jesus Christ. They would have Psalm 110 as part of their biblical imagination, that he's a king, a victorious king, a victorious Messiah, who's going to right everything that's wrong. And I'm hoping that's just getting in your, in your mind and in your heart and causing you to ache and long for this stuff to happen. Uh, that is, as we read in Psalm 72, you know, this king who would rule rightly and with fairness and with justice for all. Uh, it's beautiful. Right? So what, what I'm trying to get you to see, basic Christianity, when you say, I believe in Jesus, connect Jesus to the Messiah, the office, the, the role of what God sent him to do and to be. Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one, the one who will emerge victorious. And what we're tapping into, if you want to know gospel doctrine, here's a good theological term. It's the Christus Victor picture of what Jesus has done. Right? It's, it's Jesus is the Christ, the victorious one. And if you, if you read the Gospel of Mark, and I would encourage you to do that if you haven't done that in a while, that's what Jesus comes to do. The Messiah, the Christ, that's the whole first half of the book. He chases away darkness, the demons flee. Uh, Jesus rules over himself. For the first time, a human being says no to temptation. Um, he rules the wild animals in the desert. They don't harm him. He's like Adam again. They're listening. He speaks and men and women change their entire lives and give up everything and start following him. What kind of person has that authority and power? He heals the sick. He gives sight to the blind. He raises the dead. He brings peace to a storm. I mean, all these things are the Messiah ruling and reigning and putting our enemies under his feet. And when Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel, it's part of what Jesus is saying is repent and believe I am the Messiah, and the time you've been hoping for is here now. <laughs> Trust in me. 
Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Put those two terms together in your head. And here's, here's what's really practical about this. What makes Jesus um, helpful as someone who is and real and true is you're going to be more helped and more changed by Jesus as you see him as God intended him to be. Right? And what I'm getting at is if Jesus is the Messiah that God promised, you got to know what God promised that he would do, and you also get to know him and see what he did. And, and you're going to be helped and strengthened when you say, this is what the Messiah is here to do, to right all that is wrong in me and the world around me, because that's what the Messiah does. It, it's taking Jesus and having your, your biblical imagination shaped by God's words instead of what you want him to be. <laughs> and that'll actually change you. So, Jesus is the Messiah. That's part of Psalm 110, and we're going to dig into this in a, in a minute. Do you see how that's good news? That's simply what Mark says. It's the beginning of the gospel. Jesus is the Messiah. Watch and see him fulfill everything the Old Testament said he would do. In, in part. <laughs> but that's another story. Right? If you want to know who is Jesus, everybody has to answer that question. I mean, you think about all the most influential people who have ever lived, Jesus is in the top three. And he claims that if you trust in him, he will make you an heir, as John prayed, an heir of salvation, an heir of the cosmos. I mean, the promises that Jesus gives are so high, it's demanding that you say, Jesus, are you really this person that this old book says is true and real, and because he's true and real, then helpful, that he's gospel? So, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one your heart is waiting for. And one more shocking detail. It's really interesting. When you, when you think about Mark chapter 1 saying Jesus is the Christ, the Christ of Psalm 110, um, how would the non-Jewish listeners, like if you've never heard this story before and you're in a, you grew up in a, an ancient Roman home, you, you never read the Bible, you've never cracked open the Old Testament. So when you hear Jesus Christ, you think it's his last name because you don't know yet. Right? How would they hear it? Well, in the ancient world, right, Mark, when Mark was written, especially when Jesus lived, you know who was the Lord, so to speak? It was Augustus Caesar. Right? Before Augustus became Caesar and was in charge of the Roman Empire, this empire was in, 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 in a massive civil war, and ordinary people were just waiting for somebody to figure this stuff out so they could go back to their normal lives and stop killing each other. And when Augustus came into power, there was this massive peace. Right? And what we have from history is this really fascinating birthday announcement from, from Augustus Caesar. And maybe you'll see that we've been celebrating our birthday all wrong, and you'll start sending cards telling other people to celebrate that you're, that you're alive, because that's what he did. But listen to the language he uses. It's, it's on, on your bulletin, on your outline. But it says, Since Providence... Uh, has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life and has made everything in perfect order by giving us Augustus. Right? This is what he's telling everyone. The same Augustus whom she filled with virtue so he could benefit all of mankind, sent him as a savior for both us and our descendants that he might end war and arrange all things since he, Caesar, by his appearance. He even excelled in our expectations. <laughs> He surpassed all previous benefactors 
And he's not going to leave any hope to his posterity doing anything better than he has done. And then it says, Since the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good news for the world that came by reason of him. <laughs> it's like Mark pulled that line out straight from, from Augustus' birthday card. Right? See, what, what it's saying, what Augustus was telling everyone is, Rejoice, I'm in charge. I was born, I'm here, I'm going to fix everything that's wrong with the world. And Mark is saying, no, Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the beginning of the gospel, the one who is the Son of God, the King. <laughs> See, what Mark is proclaiming, even to the Roman listeners and to us today, if you've never heard of Jesus before, the ruler of this world, the one who's going to write everything that is wrong, is somebody like Augustus, but better. He was tapping into their hopes. Right? Sorry, Caesar, Jesus is the ruler of this world by God's design. And so, what do you do with all that if Jesus is the Messiah? And I, I, you know, I, for me personally, as a follower of Jesus, I need to develop and strengthen this picture of, of, our, of Jesus as the Christ. But we sang it this morning. I don't know if you remember, what, Hail to the Lord's Anointed. Hail to the Messiah. Right? If you have suffered any kind of wrong, which if you're human, you have. If you're any kind of victim, if you are poor and needy, if you feel overlooked or insignificant, if you are weak and need strength, that's what we sang. Hail to the Lord's anointed. God's, God's appointed person at the right time. He is here. He is king. All right? It's saying, welcome the Messiah Jesus into your life because he comes to give aid for you and your battles and in your life. And he's not just reinforcements. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He is the one in charge that God has given him that power. And we're going to look at here in a minute. So you're supposed to say, hail, welcome. It's an old term, but it's just saying, thank God you are here because I can't fix this mess. It's so broken, I can't do it. Right? It's, imagine being in a battle, as it was prone to be in, in the ancient world, and you are getting your tail kicked, you're about to run heels and about to be run over by the enemy, and along comes your king, who has the strength to win the war. Right? You say, when you get reinforcements, you say, you, hail, you are most welcome here. That's the attitude we're supposed to have about the Messiah, because of who God made him to be to give you songs for sighing, to turn your darkness in light, into light, to say, Hail Jesus, you are the Messiah. I'm going to trust you to fix this mess because I can. Mark 1.1, 1, 1, Jesus is the Christ. And because Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, you can't look at anything that happens in your life the same way. You're called to look at your life in light of the gospel in light of Jesus being the Messiah, the one God promised he would send. All right? I mean, one last application point, for, especially for those of us who are Christians and know this term, that Jesus is the Messiah. What does that do for your confidence in God to see him fulfill promises? Right? Every single promise from Genesis 3, given to different people, uh, given through Moses, given through David, 
and then see it happen in the Gospels. I mean, this is part of what believing the Gospel means is, is just growing your confidence that God will do what He said He will do because He's already sent you a Messiah. Right? Tr- trust in His Word. It is shown to be true and trustworthy. Now, second point. If Jesus is the Messiah, what does that mean? Then to say He's God's Son. Right? We say in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. And if you look at Psalm 110, what we are shown here is a victorious Messiah who is also a king. And uh, in basic Christianity, that's what we teach. Jesus is the Messiah, God's beloved Son, God's king, the one who God has put all things in his hands. All right, and it helps to know that if you are a king in the Old Testament, in the line of David, you were called God's son. So that's part of what Psalm 110 is getting at. If David is saying this, um, that someone is going to sit on a throne, when they sit on a throne at God's right hand, they will be God's son. That God is going to relate to them like a father does to a son and a son does to a father. It's an intimate relationship. That's what happened. David was treated and called God's son. Every king after David, in the line of David, they were called a son. Second Samuel 7, that was God's promise to David. I'm going to raise up one of your children to sit on a throne. He will build a house for my name and he, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And God says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So with that in mind, look at Psalm 110. Psalm 110 promises long ago that there will be a king sitting in God's presence as the Lord and king of heaven and earth. Someone said, who God says, sit at my right hand. To be at God's right hand is to have all power and authority in heaven and in earth handed to you. So it's like God said this. Can't, you, you, the Lord says to my Lord, to David, I'm just going to hand the reins of this world to you. You rule like I would rule. It's all yours. And I'm going to make your enemies your footstool through you. Right? It's a picture of a king sitting on a throne, ruling over his enemies and putting them under his feet. Right? That's the purpose of raising a king is you think about everything that's wrong with the world, God's answer is Jesus, sitting on the throne at the right hand, working to make his enemies his footstool. Right? That's the whole point of the Messiah. The Messiah is a king. He is God's son. And part of what he's doing right now is stomp, putting his enemies under his feet even if it doesn't look like it in the chaos of your life. (laughs) And so let me help get your imagination going here. Uh, The Messiah, we love to say Jesus loves me, but this is such hard language of having a king who fights for us, who who stomps on his enemies. That's not not warm and tender. I mean, we don't have that verse in Jesus loves me. You know, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. There's nothing about stomping on enemies. So that's why I wrote a third verse. <laughs> right? So just, just listen to this. 
Jesus loves me, this I know, and I want you to believe this. This is an act of love for Jesus to be king. Jesus loves me, this I know. I'm not going to sing it for you, for the Bible tells me so. (laughs) See our God's victorious king resting his feet on our stomped foes, or on our vanquished foes, however you want to put that. You can sing it on your own. I'll, I'll write it down for you if you're really interested. But it's saying this is what Jesus came to do, to rest his feet on all of his enemies. It's an exalted king who has all power, who's going to right all that is wrong. I know as Christians we love to sing these songs about God's great love for us, Jesus' great love for us. We sing, heaven meets earth like a sloppy wet kiss. I don't know if you know that song, oh, how he loves us over and over again. You don't get that in Psalm 110. You get a king with a sword with power to fix what is wrong. Jesus loves me because he sends this king. So I was going to, I thought about trying to get some of the kids to help model this, but I think it would be too chaotic. But just picture Lord Eben sitting on his throne with his brothers under his feet. Or even better, we'll put Teddy on the throne with Eben under his feet. (laughs) Right? No brother wants his brother's feet on their head. Right? It's humiliating. It says they're stronger than me. They're treating me like a, a servant, like, they, like I should obey them, like they control me. And that's when the wrestling starts. And so I wanted to avoid all that. So just use your imagination. Oh, the, the pec- picture here of a king in Psalm 110 is every enemy in this world under his feet. Think about that, that me- metaphor. Where did that come from? Well, remember David, who's writing this psalm. David, who was a shepherd boy, who didn't look like a king at all, but who was anointed king and had the spirit of the Lord fill him. What was his first act as king? Part of it was to start to subdue Saul. He played songs and to calm down his anxious spirit, his harmful rage. And then his next act as the one anointed was that story of David and Goliath, which... Right, the boys, right, all the kids know that, song, that story. When David flung the stone and killed the giant. And then he put the giant under his feet, literally, with, with, and talk, took the sword and, and showed him who reigned and cut off his head. Right. And then you have David who, who refused to take the, the, the throne himself as he ran for his life from Saul, who was the king. And he humbly refused to take the power. He wanted to let God put him in place despite multiple opportunities to violently take it. The same David, who after being made king, he conquered and took the city of Jerusalem and ruled there for 33 years, all for the sake of God's people. And so part of what David is looking at is the patterns of his own life and saying, I need someone better than me. Because look at the patterns. David is saying, well, God is telling David what's going to happen. You need a king who's going to lead God's armies into victory in battle. Uh, That's verse 3. You have a king who ruled over Israel and David from Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem. We need a king like David. And it would seem, if you're watching David's life, if you have followed the story, um, like, like all the promises were coming true because he did defeat Goliath. He did sit on the throne. He is in Zion ruling and reigning and extending God's kingdom. 
Except turns out David was just as infected and weak and vulnerable as you or I, as he took another man's wife, killed her husband, and abused power. That's not not the attitude we want from a ruler. And so what God tells David in Psalm 110 is, my Messiah is going to be like you, but better. He's going to be your Lord, David. He's going to be your king. He's going to be better because he's going to have all authority in heaven and on earth, not just in Israel. Better because he's going to rule like David, but even closer to God than David got. He's going to be at God's right hand, in God's presence. What kind of person would be worthy to hold all that power. He's going to be better because he's going to be victorious. Jesus is God's son, the king, the Messiah, the one promised. And it's a beautiful promise here in Psalm 110. It's, it's foreign imagery, I know, and that's why I'm struggling to get this across, because you really have to absorb the story of the Bible and say, I want somebody to put my enemies under his feet. The enemy of death, the enemy of selfishness and sin, the enemy of violence, the enemy of governments that just ruin whole, whole nations simply because those in power refused to see themselves as somebody to serve. Right? It's trying to get you to look at Jesus, the Messiah, the King. Right? So if Jesus is the Son, how does he rule? Well, the shorter catechism helps here. It says, Christ executes the office of a king, and here's what he does. And this is where it's going to get personal and pointed, so brace yourself. He's subduing us to himself. He's ruling and defending us. That's good news. And he's also restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Right? Jesus is king, the son of God, is subduing us to himself. He's ruling and defending us, and he's restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Right, and if you're reading Psalm 110, that's exactly what was promised. Because there are two groups of people. There are the enemies of the king, and there are those who willingly follow this king. Which one are you? Right, there are those who have followed Jesus and those who are opposed to Jesus. That's it. There are those who are enemies of the king and those who love him. And if you are a Christian, this is what's most pointed here. Jesus has to subdue you to get you to follow him. Do you hear that language? Right? He has subdued you if you're a Christian, but he's actively in the process of subduing you because you're not fully submitted to him yet. And he's con- he will one day fully subdue you when he brings you into heaven and you become as faithful and, and humble as he is. But until that day, one of, one of Jesus' roles as king He's not putting you under his feet to humiliate you, but he is subduing you so you can rule and reign like him. And I'll be honest here, this is the bad news of the gospel. Who wants to be told you need subdued? That's why parenting is so hard. (laughs) When was the last time someone told you to subdue yourself to them? Probably at work when you had to go to a business meeting you didn't want want to go to, right? Or the idea is this is not popular. I don't like to be told to get in line, to submit and be subdued because it implies that there's something wrong with me and I'm not listening. Right? That I need Jesus, the King, the Messiah, to bring me in line with his rule. 
that I have a nature that needs subdued, restrained. That's why we confess our sin every week, to bring you to, to a place where you say, Jesus, I need this thing called sin subdued in me. I can't, I can't kill it. And so right now, Psalm 110 is in process. God's Son has come. The gospel is true. And what Jesus is doing right now from the throne with all authority in heaven and earth, he is looking at you, he is looking at me and saying, I want you to be subdued. <laughs> Follow me. All right, so that's, that's it. That's the gospel. It's God's plan for your life. Submit and obey God's King, the Messiah. Follow him. All right. It sets up a daily conflict, doesn't it? When Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel, he, he did not mean the one time. He meant every day. Re repent and believe that Jesus is the Messiah, God's only son, who is the king, who is calling you to submit to him. All right. So, just imagine. I want, I want you to hear the offense. There's this fascinating place in Mark chapter 2 where four friends lower a paralyzed man down in front of Jesus to be healed. And if you look at somebody who, uh, anybody who has any kind of physical ailment, what do you think their, their main problem is? Right? It's, it's, they need, we need physical healing. That's what we pray for. But the very first thing Jesus says to this man and what he's going to say to you and I, he says, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> right? He's saying to somebody who can't walk, the thing you need most in your life is to be subdued under my rule and reign. You are my enemy, I forgive you. And he's never met this guy. Do you feel the tension? <laughs> you only can forgive somebody if they've offended you and ruined your life and have ruined your kingdom. And Jesus turns to a man whose body needs to be healed, who's suffered and says, you first need to be subdued. I need to forgive your sin. I need to forgive your treason to somebody who can't walk. And everybody listening is just freaking out and saying, who in the world could say something like that? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus understands exactly where they're coming from. And he says, why do you question these things in your hearts? What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and walk? But so that you might know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. And everyone said, we have never seen anything like this. <laughs> so part of what I'm hoping you see is for Jesus to be the Messiah, to be the king, to say you need subdued, he has to be more than just human. He has to be God's only son. Not just a human being, but, but the divine son come to tell you that you have offended him with your sin. You need subdued. It's in Psalm 110. You, you can get the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity from Psalm 110, which we did last, last year in Matthew. All right? If the Messiah is going to be David's son, why would David, the father, say to the son, you're my Lord? I don't turn to my son Jonah and say, yes, my Lord, I will do whatever you want. <laughs> Part of what Jesus, this is what Jesus said. The person promised in Psalm 110 is not just a human king, 
but God himself coming to, to fix what is wrong with this world. The Messiah is God and human. That's the gospel. <laughs> it's all packed into Psalm 110. That Jesus is the Messiah, he's God's son, he's God's king. He is the second person of the Trinity who is actively ruling and reigning to bring you into his kingdom, but then through you to, to bring his rule to, into all the world. And so the question is, do you, do you live as if that gospel is true? Have you subdued yourself to this Jesus? Right. What will get you to trust his authority? That's where we're going to end here. I'm trying to pump Jesus up. I mean, not really pump him up. He doesn't need pumped up. This is what the scriptures say. He's, he is the exalted king. You can't get any higher than sitting at God's right hand and to have all things under his feet. Right? What's going to get you to trust him? And that's, that's the second part here is, Jesus is Lord. Oh, there's a third part. Sorry, you got Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. You have Jesus, the Son, David's Son, uh, David's greater Son, the Son of God. And you also see that He's Lord, but He's Lord because of, of the way He lived on earth. God had to put Him on that throne. And what He did to get on that earth, <laughs> to, to, while He was on earth to get on that throne, excuse me, is, is He became human like you and I. It's Philippians 2. Right? You're going to see Christ and Lord and Messiah language all through the New Testament the more you meditate on this. But what, what Paul says is Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He actually considered others more significant than himself. And, and to, to prove it, he became like us. He became human. He became a servant humble, even, obedient even, even to the point of death on a cross. And because he died on the cross for our sins, God exalted him to the, to the highest place, to the name that is above every name, so that at, at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, the one I submit to, the one who I obey. See, what's going to grab your heart to, to be willing to be subdued by this king? is the other half of the gospel, that the one with that much power and that much authority would use it to serve, that he would value your blood so much that he would shed his own. That's how he claims you. And this is how you're going to change by the gospel, right? If you, Christian living is this dance where you repent and you, you believe the gospel and you have to tell yourself every day, Jesus is my Lord. I have not lived like it today. Jesus, forgive me, and you get back up and fight another day. All right? But if you don't like that language of Jesus being Lord, if you only want the Lord of love, it's not going to change you. All right? in, our, in our Western church, this is how we're going to, this is a really interesting account of how one church has just completely thrown out this idea of Jesus being Lord. It's in, it's in Tucson, Arizona, the largest Episcopal church, and they've created an alternative worship service called Come and See. And so basically what they did is they had a worship service and stopped calling Jesus Lord. So that first sentence of Mark chapter 1, which is the very content of everything we talked about, Messiah, the Christ, the Lord, 
They don't talk about it because Lord has become a loaded word, they said. It conveys hierarchical power over things, which we have recorded in our sacred text, but that's not who Jesus considered himself to be, said the pastor. And so this is how they describe their own theology. They say, our theology is a God is love, period. And our service has done everything in it to get rid of power imagery. And so we pray as though we, we do not pray like we expect a big guy in the sky to come and fix everything. <laughs> Did you hear that? He said, the only way Jesus can love me is if he's not in charge of me. And here's, here's what I want to conclude and, and get you to wrestle with. You will not be changed by Jesus. He will have, the gospel will have no effect on you. If you do not understand the Lord who loves you, it's gonna, it only electrifies you if he is actually Lord and Messiah. If you only see that you were once his enemy and he died for you while you were yet his enemy and he calls you to be his servant, that will only change you if you see that he up here humbled himself to come down to serve you. Because otherwise, if God just loves you, he's just doing his job. It's going to have no effect because he's going to accept you as you are and you're never going to see yourself as needing to be changed. Right? So today, what I want to confront, have confronted you with, what, what the scriptures have confronted us with, is Jesus is the Messiah, the one who has promised to fix all that is wrong. He is the king that God has put all things into his hands, and he now is the Lord who is working to subdue you, to bring you into his kingdom, so that you can pray, Lord, may your will be done in my, here on earth as it is in heaven in my life. And so I'm going to end with those two questions. Who do you say Jesus is? It's the most important question. There is no person who has ever lived who has made that kind of exalted claim. And then say it's good news. It's, it's gospel. The gospel is this is who Jesus is and this is what he did. As Christ, Messiah, Son of God, and Lord. All right. And the second question, if he is the Lord and he is actively ruling and reigning to subdue you, what are you not letting him subdue? Or what are you trying to fix that you do not have the power to fix that you need to leave in the Lord's hands? Because if he is making all your enemies, all of his enemies your footstool, and he has now turned you from an enemy to be a citizen of the kingdom, that means his enemies are your enemies and your enemies are his enemies, and he is working to fight for and defend you. So you can hear the gospel and trust that he will work these things out. If not now, he has promised to work all things together for our good. Because Jesus is the king who loves us, who rules for us, and he also defends us as Christ, Messiah, and the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we... Uh, we had to go through a foreign language experiment. <laughs> we had to learn new language to talk about the Messiah, the King, to talk about Jesus who rules over us. And so I pray you would give us eyes to see him as he is. And in light of everything we are experiencing, we would repent and believe the gospel. And because this King died for us, we would be willing to freely offer ourselves to go where he goes. And so I pray for those who are who are weak and needy, who need comfort, who need aid, and who need strength, that, that you would teach them to look at the right hand of God 
and ask him to come with comfort speedy uh, to give them songs for their sighing as we sung. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.